0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Hopefully this week you were able to pause and to reflect upon the upcoming year. In light of our sermon from last week, our resolve for good in 2018, we said that because God is worthy, God is worthy of you resolving to do good. And when you pray for God's power and trust in His promises, the work you accomplish in 2018 will result in the glory of Christ, which is a sign of your own future glorification. And so we said because of God's worthiness, it necessitates that we step back and resolve to do good this year, to really strive for that, to be willing to pray for that, to be willing to ask others to pray uh, for our own resolutions in our life for good this upcoming year. And so challenged you last week to make resolutions that are driven by prayer. You're praying for yourself. You're asking others to pray for you. So the best things that you're going to accomplish in 2018 cannot be accomplished without asking God to do them through you. And so prayer is absolutely crucial to any resolutions that are worth making, making resolutions that align with your calling, uh, talking about showing Christ's worth by the way that we strive to live our lives in 2018, and then making resolutions that are good and glorifying. Do as much good as possible by trusting the promises of God and exalting Christ with our actions. So hopefully you've been able to make some resolutions to resolve to do good this year. Hopefully you've made some intentional plans. Hopefully you're already praying and asking others to pray with you. I encourage you to share your resolutions with your accountability group so they can kind of be aware of how to help encourage you this year. We come to Revelation chapter 13. We discussed Revelation chapter 12 throughout the Christmas season. Looking back at the first coming of Jesus and how Jesus' arrival was the first defeat of satan and how it enrages satan to then attack and persecute the church and at the end of revelation chapter 12 actually in the esv translation it has it here at the beginning but let me read verse 17 of chapter 12 it says then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of god and hold to the testimony of jesus in that last piece of revelation chapter 12 And he stood on the sand of the sea. And that leads us into Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, the life, in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. <clears throat> if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. And it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Six, six. So this is like the chapter that that everybody thinks of when they think of Revelation, right? Like it's got everything. It's got Uh, allusions to an antichrist we've got the mark of the beast Uh, we've got um, the worship of the dragon just a lot of the things that we typically think of when we think of the book of revelation so i told you earlier today this is a confusing chapter a chapter that we're going to try to move through slowly but not too slowly we want to make sure that we're proclaiming the word we want to make sure that we're exalting christ that we're not spending too much time speculating really want to focus on the things that are clear and then we may take a sunday to kind of step back and look at some of these other things and speculate a little bit. But primarily, as we work through chapter 13, we want to really stick with what is clear and what it means for us as New Testament believers. All right, let's look at the summary sentence for today. Satan deceives the nations and persecutes the church through evil governments and leaders and will probably eventually empower a final antichrist that will be unable to defeat true Christians. Um, We're going to see today that the majority of scholars and theologians and, and commentaries really see a spirit of Antichrist, and I think John alludes to this in his, in his epistles as well. There's a spirit of Antichrist that's constantly kind of at work and moving around the globe, right? This, this, this Antichrist-type spirit that um, various governments and various leaders and various false teachers are going to exhibit, And so Satan uses nations to persecute the church through that government system, through the leaders that rise within those governments. But I do think scripture lends itself to us believing that eventually there will be a final antichrist that kind of shows up, that embodies what we think of when we think of antichrist. But the encouragement is that he he will be unable to defeat the true Christians our kids, even though an antichrist may be coming, he will be unable to defeat Christians because of Jesus, right? This is, a, this is again, where we started in Revelation, that sometimes Revelation is presented a, in, such, in such a way that, that it's scary to believers, particularly kids, that, that sometimes there's too much speculation, there's too much, a given, give, too much attention given to figures like the antichrist in Revelation, to the point that we begin to, to grow fearful of his arrival, We grow fearful of his existence. I mean, that's certainly not where John wants to leave us as he writes about this beast, this figure, particularly the sea beast here at the beginning of chapter 13. So there's a sea beast and a land beast called that because of where they originate from. Uh, What we're going to kind of see is a a anti-trinity that's really being presented here. You've got Satan representative with the dragon. You've got what most people believe to be a antichrist human figure that's going to show up. That's empowered by Satan to do certain things, basically kind of assuming the role of Christ. So Satan kind of being that anti-God the Father, the, the Antichrist being the, the anti-God the Son, and then what you read about here, the, the, the land beast, he acts much like the Holy Spirit towards the second beast, right? He, he points people to this sea beast. He, he does things, performs signs, so that people will worship the other beast. And so that's much of the role that we see in the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is here to point people to Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit's not here to garner our worship. The Holy Spirit is here to point us to Christ. Um, So it's kind of an anti-trinity, not just an anti-Christ, but an anti-trinity that's sort of presented in this chapter. What we again saw in chapter 12 was the idea of Satan being enraged towards God's people because he was unable to stop the Messiah from coming. Chapter 13 is the fleshing out of how the dragon rages war against the church in chapter 12. So really, chapter 13 is the same thing that we have going on in chapter 12. We just get some of the details of how that actually looks. Remember we said that, that uh, Satan, like a dragon, stands and is blowing out these flooding waters in hopes of consuming God's people, but God opens up the earth, <coughs> swallows up those waters, and protects them. How does Satan do that? Well, he does it through these figures here in chapter 13. That's how he rages war against God's people, through these figures. And so chapter 13 is really a fleshing out of how chapter 12 is to be understood. We've already seen this, but just as a reminder, imagery of the sea monster in the Old Testament is always used to represent evil kingdoms which persecute God's people. So that's why we're going to see that, that the Antichrist spirit is oftentimes embodied in governments and governmental leaders. And sometimes it's hard to separate the two, right? Like when we think of Nazi Germany, we think of Adolf Hitler, right? Like when we think of, when we think of America and its beginnings, we oftentimes think of George Washington, right? Oftentimes government and their leaders kind of go hand in hand where we think of them in the same terms. And so that may also be where we kind of see Antichrist embodied in the end time. Before Jesus comes back, but he being highly connected with the government that he leads. And so more emphasis may be placed on the actual governmental structure versus the actual leader. When we think in terms of evil kingdoms and their persecution of God's people, we're going to see some similarities with the story of Daniel and some of the things that Daniel saw in his prophecy. So it might even be helpful to, helpful to think of Daniel and his friends and the persecution that they endured with these governments that rose to attack God's people, right? Daniel and his his friends ripped away from Israel, taken to Babylon, then the Persian Empire rises, and there's the call to worship the leader of those governments, right? Nebuchadnezzar sets himself up with this great image that they're told to worship. Even Daniel is then tempted to to worship within the Persian Empire as well, gets cast into the den of lions. So So, in that context, we see Daniel and his friends being called to worship leaders within the governmental structure, right? So think in terms of that when we talk about what's going on here in chapter 13. I really think what we see, and this is all part of our introductory notes, this chapter emphasizes that Satan is the ultimate foe of the Christian, and he stands behind all earthly evil and opposition. So let's not think that we're waiting in terms for the Antichrist. When we see governments springing up that are anti-church, anti-Christian, persecuting the church, I mean, that's driven by Satan and his forces. Now, we know that God is ultimately responsible for government. God is ultimately responsible for the leadership that assumes that role over government. But man, their motives, their intentions, I mean, that's satanic in its origins. To attack the church, to persecute Christianity, to make it illegal to share the gospel, this is Satan as the ultimate foe of the Christian. He stands behind these earthly evils and oppositions. I'm, I'm going to tell you up front, I don't think the goal of this chapter, nor of any of our discussion over the coming weeks, the goal is not to tell us who the beast is or who the Antichrist is, and we're going to kind of use those terms interchangeably. The term Antichrist is never used in the book of Revelation. So if you do a quick search in your Bible app, you're not going to find the word Antichrist in the book of Revelation. You're only going to find it in First and Second John. But that term is kind of used interchangeably with the beast, and so we'll do that uh, for the most part in our discussion as well. But the goal is not to tell us who the beast is, but instead to tell us what he will do and why he will be unsuccessful against the church. Make sure you understand that's the goal of our discussion. That's the goal of chapter 13. It's not to tell us who this guy is, if he's even a guy, right? It's not to tell us who he is. It's not to give us the identity of the man of lawlessness, It's not to give us the identity of the sea beast. It's not to give us the identity of the Antichrist. The goal is to help us understand what he will do, what will be going on when he rises to power, and why he will be unsuccessful against the church. No saved person falls during this time. Man, that ought to be such an encouragement to us. As we sit here as believers, we wonder, will we live all the way until Jesus comes back. And if so, if Revelation is true, times are going to get very difficult leading up to that time before Jesus comes back. Do we have anything to fear? And what rings true in Revelation chapter 13 is absolutely not. That no saved person falls to the Antichrist and to his structure. Now we're gonna clarify, we're gonna gonna quantify what we mean by that. But no saved person falls. That's the goal of chapter 13, to encourage us because as we're going to see, and we're only going to get through verse 10 today, as we're going to see with verse 10, here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Right, John says, here's why I've just told you about the sea beast, because I want you as a Christian to endure it. I want you as a Christian to remain faithful when he comes to power. All right, The beasts of chapter 13, they're the earthly manifestations of evil, so... I don't think that we're going to see Satan incarnate at any point. I don't think we're going to see Satan take on bodily form. I do think we're going to see Satan work through human institutions. He's going to work through human beings to accomplish what we see in chapter 12. He's going to wreak havoc upon the church. He's going to do it through human figures. That's what we see in chapter 13, these beasts representing. The beasts resemble those of Daniel chapter 7. Um, So if you want to turn over to Daniel chapter 7. Again, we're talking about language that's not just unique to Revelation. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down a dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. All right, so we've got the connection with the sea already. And four great beasts came out of the sea different from one another the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings then as i looked its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of man was given to it verse 5 behold another beast a second one like a bear it was raised up on one side it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told arise devour much flesh after this i looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and a dominion and dominion was given to it After this, I saw in the night vision, behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things." All right, so there's a lot of similarities in this passage to the beast that we're talking about. The, they, they, they resemble them, but what you have in Daniel, and this is where it's tough, too, because we almost need to pause and stop and do a study on some of this stuff in Daniel, too. But I don't want us to get hung up too much because I want to get out of Revelation at some point, right? Like I've already heard from some of you, man, I'd love to study this book of the Bible next. I'd love to study this book of the Bible next. And so I don't want us to get too bogged down. At some point, we'll come to the book of Daniel and study some of this again. Uh, which will be great too because it'll keep it fresh in our minds. But if you study the book of Daniel, most people believe these kingdoms represent Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, kind of a succession of empires that arose. What we see here in Revelation is the the beast that John sees takes pieces of all of these empires and kind of groups it into one beast. And I think really the message there is that this latter-day beast embodies kind of all the evil that we saw in these previous empires. So while you break them up in Daniel and you've got evil empire, evil empire, evil empire, evil empire, and some of the things that they did to God's people, this latter-day beast is kind of a, a combination of all of them, right? And it, it's really a nod to how evil it is in the latter days, that it kind of takes all of this and summarizes it and combines it all into one beast, all right? The beast mirrors the dragon in appearance. You should see the close connection there because they've got the same amount of heads and the same amount of horns. The dragon that's described in Revelation 12 is almost identical to the, the beast description in Revelation 13. It shows us their close connection. The beast has many heads and one mouth. That ought to kind of be weird. Like if, if you were to try to draw this, if, if Jack down here was to try to draw this beast for us, it would get confusing at times trying to figure out, okay, it's got 10 it's got 10 heads. Uh, and, and, and it's got horns and it's got it's got all this stuff going on, but it's got one mouth and really the, the the message there is that there is consistency consistency in the message, consistency in the purpose. so again, as we see governments rise and fall and we see leaders come and go, we see individuals who have been very persistent to persecute the church to attack god's people and then die off, and then somebody else rises up. The message here, the one mouth signifies there's consistency, there's unity in that purpose, okay? So again, I think this is the embodiment of all these empires, all these governments that are against God's people, but there's consistency in their message as they change over time. I think we see consistency communicated to us in 1 John, and we're gonna read these passages here in just a second. But John tells us in his epistles You want to know what Antichrist is? Antichrist is anybody that has bad theology about Jesus, that just really denies Jesus, denies some of the core principles of who Jesus is, wants to basically explain away the incarnate God's son, wants to just explain him away. That's Antichrist. And so uh, even John says, hey, you're going to have a lot of Antichrists that come and go. You're going to find consistency in their message. They want to explain away Jesus. Let's look at some of these relevant passages. Uh, let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. And these are kind of the key passages that we think of or should think of that inform us about Antichrist. Back in Daniel chapter 7, if you skip down to verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. I mean, that's gonna be the message that we find in Revelation is that while these beasts rise and these governments come into being, what ultimately happens is that they fall and the kingdom is possessed by God's people. Verse 19, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which fourth beast which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companion's. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Okay, there's consistency there. This, this little horn that's able to rise up, it makes war against the saints. We see that same terminology in Revelation, right? It's allowed to make war against God's people and to conquer them. It says that, that he makes war against the saints and prevails over them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. We're going to get to this point in Revelation. Yeah, the sea beast rises, the land beast rises, but you know what? The Ancient of Days is going to show up and is going to defeat them and hand the kingdom over to his people, and we're going to rule and reign with Christ forever. Same message in Daniel. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. This is where some of that one world government mentality comes from as for the ten horns out of this kingdom ten kings shall rise another shall rise after them he shall be different from the former ones he shall put down three kings he shall speak words against the most high he shall wear out the saints of the most high and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time times and half a time okay we see him speaking words against the most high that's consistent with what we see in revelation right the blasphemies against god and his dwelling which is his people (laughs) We see them. Uh, we see him being able to do this for time, times, and time and a half. We said that time frame is consistent with the 42 months that we see in Revelation, and we're seeing that in Revelation 13, that this sea beast is given uh, the ability to conquer and to make war against the saints for 42 months, just like here in Daniel chapter 7. But the court shall sit in judgment. His dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Okay, that's one passage that, that really gives us some insight into the Antichrist. We go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. John doesn't say the last hour is coming, the last days are coming. He says we're in that. Okay, so we've been reading Revelation with the belief and understanding that the end time started with Jesus coming that first time. He came, he lived, he came, he died, he came, he rose, and he came and ascended and defeated Satan. He initiated, he inaugurated that defeat, right? So John says, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If, you have, if, you, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. John describes Antichrist as being people who are a part of the church. At some point in their life, they decide to abandon the faith. They either, they either leave the evangelical church and kind of spur off and start this, this other thing, that, that's, a, that's a perversion of Christianity, a cult that, that misunderstands who Jesus is, or they just simply abandon the faith completely and deny Jesus being the Messiah because they don't anticipate a Messiah. They're not, they're not interested in the things of God anymore. John says these are, these are antichrist-type people. They're people that were a part of us, and then they leave us to go do different things. They abandon what they originally heard about Jesus and now have a different theology about Jesus. 1 John chapter 4 is, the other pa- is another passage that references that term antichrist- verses 3 and 4. Start in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God, You've overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And that's, that's John echoing what we see in Revelation chapter 13 too, that yes, there's Antichrist, yes, there's this perversion, yes, this, this, there's this deception, but he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. John says, if your name's written in the book of life, I mean, you're not going to succumb to this. You're not going to give in to this, okay? Second John chapter 7. I think I said chapter 7 is verse 7. There's only one chapter. Second John verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Okay, so Antichrist, again, attached to this deceptive type spirit. We see then also in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, passages that we've talked through previously, this man of lawlessness that oftentimes is labeled the Antichrist as well. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I heard Ryan talking about whether or not do we take the the, the sea beast to be figurative for a person and not really an individual and and understand it to be kind of an all-encompassing picture of evil or do we understand it to be an individual i think this passage gives us support to think more along the individual lines at some point so i think it's kind of a a picture of both man that sea beast represents all of evil all these governments all these leaders embodied in this one picture of of an antagonist against the the people of god but then second thessalonians i think as you read that man you read that and think man there's an individual who is coming and i think hopefully you pick up on the language here I mean, that sounds like what we're reading about in Revelation 13, this picture of deception, this picture of false signs and wonders that cause people to worship him. It's, a, uh, it's, it's described as activity of Satan. We see the sea beast being empowered by Satan in Revelation chapter 13. We see only those believing this man of lawlessness uh, are people that were already perishing. It's not people whose names are written in the book of life. It's people who were already perishing it's people who believe th- believes things that are false in order that they may be condemned because they did not believe the truth. All right, so these are some of the, the main passages that we'll be looking at over the coming weeks to get a better understanding of what's going on here. What I want you to understand is that, all right, here those passages are. The Antichrist concept is a spirit that is always at work. Okay, it's that denial of Jesus uh, coming in the flesh. It's the denial of Jesus as the Messiah. It's always at work, and it may manifest itself personally in the form of a leader who opposes God and his people. That seems to be where this thing is headed. As antichrists and governments come and go, their spirit lives on, the spirit that is anti Jesus. All right? All right, real quick two more things, and then we'll jump into a a short outline on this passage, and then I'm going to give you some strong application. Who is the beast? There's been a lot of speculation about the beast, about the Antichrist. The original readers would have most likely understood it to be Rome and its emperor. And it would have had fulfillment for them at that, at that time. Because while it may not be the Antichrist or the beast, they were certainly living under a government that put itself in a position where it demanded to be worshipped, right? Nero and Domitian and some of these other guys, they were saying, worship us, we are Lord. And if you don't worship us, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be burned at the stake. You're going to be executed, so there's no way you would have read Revelation when it was first written and said I don't think it's talking about this. I think it's talking about something else. You just said, "Well, this makes total sense like cuz we are living in this. Like we are being persecuted for our faith because we're not worshipping our government." Almost every reformer, right? So so when we think of the Reformation, almost every reformer would have labeled the Catholic Church and its pope as the Antichrist. Again, because it was a perversion of Christianity. Guys like Martin Luther had to come in and correct a lot of false doctrine. I mean, during that time, I mean, they're selling pieces of paper that, if, that, that you're being told, if you purchase this, it'll get you out of heaven and you can get other, or get you out of hell and you can get other people out of hell too if you'll pay money to the church man, they had such a monopoly on theology because they were the only ones that could understand the Bible, right? Like, it's why we're so grateful and thankful for guys like John Wycliffe who showed up and said, no, the common man needs to be able to understand the Bible so we have some checks and balances in place so that the, the pope and its bishops aren't just communicating whatever they want for personal gain. So, man, they they definitely embodied a lot of the the Antichrist spirit during that time as well, right? So, Anything and everything that kind of fits that mold can properly be labeled antichrist. Now, we don't want to probably become the type of people that go around using that term saying antichrist, antichrist, that's antichrist. You're going to get labeled kind of weird and odd and and probably not accomplish the things that we want to. But I do think it's appropriate to see the spirit of antichrist, to identify it in our culture, because we need to be aware. Because John says, if you've got an ear, listen and hear what I'm telling you right? So we need to be aware of things going on around us and how they fit into that antichrist type mold. Um, I think it's going to be hard to tell when the antichrist is actually here because so many have come and gone, right? Like again, I don't think the goal is for us to know, hey, that's the antichrist. I think we're supposed to be on guard all the time because we may live at a time. I mean, if you had died before Hitler had fallen, you probably died thinking he is the antichrist, And that's okay because, man, if you're alert and aware and you're guarding and protecting yourself against things that are happening, I don't care if you're wrong about thinking that was the Antichrist and it not being the Antichrist. Because the message, again, I think is guidance and protection and endurance through some of these things, right? So, again, I don't think it's the goal to figure out who it is. What's clear from these passages that we've already read? First of all, I think that the beast finds its power from Satan he finds his uh, his influential power from Satan, and, and I think because of that, because we we are recognizing and acknowledging a satanic origin here, we have to take this seriously, and although we understand that government is put in place by God, and God oversees the rising and falling of leaders, we can't discount the satanic aspect here of what's going on behind the scenes, so ultimately, any power that the Antichrist has comes from God, right? Because all power comes from God. Romans 13:1. let every person be subject to the governing authorities for this is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay, so even though the picture here is Satan calling out this beast from the sea so that he can put him in charge, Satan's really not doing it, right? It ultimately falls under God and his authority. But the beast does have influential power because of Satan, Number two, the beast will be highly influential in drawing attention and worship away from Christ. Like that's his goal. Worship anything but Christ, pictured in Revelation 13 as worshiping him. And remember, emperor worship was prevalent at that time. And so I do think it's written with kind of a connection type aspect of, here's how I'm going to connect with my readers. Here's how they're going to understand what I'm talking about because they get it. The emperor is demanding their worship right now. Okay. So the beast is highly influential. His power comes from Satan. He will be most effective with his mouth. Deception is his weapon. That's important to note too. It's why we need to have ears that hear and it's why we need to be guarded and protected. It's why we need to be consumed with God's word where our minds are being transformed and not conformed, right? Because it's going to get worse the temptation to conform our minds to the way of thinking of our culture. We have to be transformed by God's word. The beast may find physical victory over Christians, but he cannot win the spiritual victory. We find victory through death, according to Revelation 13, not by fighting back. The beast can find physical victory. He's going to wage war. He's going to conquer us physically, but the encouragement is that he can't win the spiritual victory. If our names are written in that book, then we don't worship him, all right? kind of summarizes that. I think what's really clear here is there's no in-between. You're either a Jesus worshiper or a beast worshiper. And you may not even realize that you're a beast worshiper, right? But to worship anything besides Jesus is to fall into that category of beast worship. And that's what we're going to see as we continue to look here. All right, let me give you some outline now for verses 1 through 10. Number one, be prepared for deception and greater deception to come be prepared for deception and for greater deception to come. For our kids, Satan lies to us in hopes of gaining our worship. So the people who first read Revelation lived in a time where, where deception was very real. We've already read that in the seven churches, right? They were, they were, they were being tempted to listen to false things, to live in, in, in incorrect ways. That's getting worse as we get closer to Jesus coming back. So we live in a time where we may, be, we may be hundreds or even thousands of years away from Jesus coming back. We live in a time where it's very real. There's a real threat to our minds as well. Deception is very real now, and it will continue to be real until Jesus comes back. We see that picture here in Revelation that there's a lot of deception that flows from Satan. First of all, there's deception in his performance. He mimics he mimics Christ's resurrection which results in awe all right so we've seen a description of him and then it says one of its heads seems to have a mortal wound but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast he mimics christ's resurrection which results in awe now here's where if you're writing fictional books about the book of revelation this is where you have your your world leader die and then come back to life like jesus and everybody turns their worship to him and that may be exactly how it unfolds. I don't. I don't know. I, I do think there's probably an individual coming, the man of lawlessness, who will embody a lot of the things that we're seeing here. And I, I wouldn't discount the fact that Satan may may have him appear to die, may may raise him from the dead to empower him to draw people's attention to him. We've seen other satanic individuals in Scripture mimic uh, the powers of um, of God and His people, right? Like we've seen. The, the, the people with Pharaoh, mimic Moses' plagues, right? So, so we've seen great power come from Satan and the origins of Satan, okay? So in some ways, he is going to mimic some of the things that Jesus did, and it's tied here to this resurrection where it looks like he gets a mortal wound, and again, the description is coming from, remember when we saw earlier in Revelation, the lamb looked as though he had been slain, but he's standing alive, that's the, that's the comparison here. It's, it's, it looks like he has a mortal wound, but he's been healed from it because he's still active. He's still moving. He's still at work. All right? He mimics Christ's resurrection in some form or fashion, which results in the awe of the people. It turns their worship to him. Okay? He's deceptive in his performance. He mimics Christ's resurrection, which results in awe. He appears to be defeated, but remains empowered. We see that slain uh, lamb. Uh, earlier in Revelation, so he's the anti that. Um, this is possibly an allusion to the defeat that he's already been given from Genesis three fifteen. That idea of, of Christ coming to crush the head of Satan, but while we've seen Satan defeated in Revelation twelve, he's still allowed to continue until Christ returns. Um, this could also be understood as again we see governments fall, we see Satan kind of come back to life as he raises up new governments and new leaders. A lot of different ways to understand this. I don't have the exact answer for you as to what does this mean about a mortal head, him looking like he's wounded and being healed from it. A lot of different ways to understand it. They're all true, okay? They're all true. Does Satan look like at times he's been defeated and then come back to life through, through new leaders and through governments? Absolutely. Um, has he been defeated by Jesus and yet still being allowed to continue? Absolutely. Is it possible that he may allow an individual to die and come back to life? And that's definitely possible it's definitely possible it doesn't discount anything about our faith if that is what happens okay I think the key here is that there's deception in his performance and it draws people to worship him because of that performance. Um, there was actually a, a, a weird theory, and I didn't spend too much time into this, but theres a, there was a theory at the time that Nero, who had committed suicide, was actually going to come back to life and assume authority over the Roman empire and so even in the context of that being kind of a widespread theory at that time, those original readers would have read this. And again, while Rome looked like it was being defeated because Nero, their leader, has committed suicide, man, Rome came back full strong with persecution towards Christians when new emperors came about. So again, it could be understood in that type of context as well. Number two, Satan is not only deceptive in his performance, he's deceptive in his power. He mimics Christ's authority, which results in worship. Okay, we see... This Antichrist figure and the fact that he has crowns and diadems, just like Jesus has been described earlier in Revelation. He's been given great authority in such a way that they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Which leads to that third deception. He's deceptive in performance, in power, and in protection. He mimics Christ's security, which results in the allegiance of these people. Here's kind of to summarize what his deception is. He is causing people to confess things that should only be confessed about God. Okay, This, this language here. Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Man, that's rooted in Old Testament language that's reserved for God. In Exodus chapter 15 verse 11, this is the song of Moses celebrating the deliverance of God from Egypt. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Right? Like, we find our security and our protection from God. Who is like him? Who can actually compare themselves to God? Who can fight against God? Who can compete against him? Instead, the people here at the end are now saying, Who's like the beast? Who can compete with him? Psalm chapter 71, verse 19. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things. O God, who is like you? Right? Like the, the awe and the majestic responses to be towards God and nothing else. Psalm 86, verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Psalm 89, verse 8. O Lord, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Micah seven eighteen. the last one I'll read to you. This is just a handful of them that are contained in the Old Testament, this, this mindset, this awe that nothing is like God. Micah seven eighteen. who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Be prepared for deception and for greater deception to come. Man, Satan's at work. He is seeking to deceive. He is seeking to detract us from Christ, to deter us from Christ, to make other things more important to us than Christ, right? Like I was sharing with you, the couple that that I'm trying to help right now with, with their marriage I mean, this guy believes that staying in your marriage is tied to being in love with your spouse. And, and that's that's the parameters. Do I stay or not stay? Well, am I in love or am I not in love? I sent her an article yesterday that I found from John Piper where he says, being, being in a marriage is not about being in love. Right? Like you've made a covenant, a covenant commitment that God helped helped institute. Right? And it's not about staying in love and whether or not you stay or don't stay. Right? There's, there's teachings that Jesus has about that marital covenant that, man, when we start to believe the deception that's out there, we start to believe that my personal joy and my personal happiness are more important than this arrangement, man, we've we've fallen prey to the deception that's circulating, right? Be on guard for deception that would seek to deter us and detract us from the things of Jesus. Be on the lookout because it's going to get worse. Greater deception is coming, all right? Number two, be encouraged by Satan's limitations and our guaranteed victory. For our kids, Jesus will not allow Satan to deceive true Christians. Be encouraged by Satan's limitations and our guaranteed victory. If you don't read between the lines, you read this and you say, this is is terrifying, this is scary, this is horrific. This beast has so much power and he's going to wage war against the saints and he's going to conquer them and authority has been given to him over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All who dwell on the earth are going to worship it. But you really get down to the nitty-gritty and you'll see that verse 5 says the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And then that authority stops. Right? Like it's cut off. Yeah, Satan has, has opportunity to do some of the things that he desires to do. Doesn't, doesn't dawn on him that that's all fitting into God's plan, right? But for 42 months, he's given authority, and then that authority stops, right? Like we've already seen in Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days shows up and takes back the kingdoms, right? Gives it to Jesus, right? Jesus and his people enjoy it for eternity, right? His, his, his authority is going to be cut off. We see um, his influence being affected as well, right? Authorities given to it, every tribe, every people, every language, every nation, that's the same group that belongs to Jesus, right? Like we've already seen that in Revelation. Those people belong to Jesus. All who dwell on the earth are going to worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slain. God limits Satan's time, number one. He's only permitted to operate for 42 months. This is the same 42 months that we've seen in Revelation already. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. I mean, you know what else is going on during this time of deception? The gospel is being preached by the two witnesses. Remember, we talked about us being kind of embodied in the grouping of that two witness. Like, man, the gospel's still going forth. Even though deception is setting in, it's not like the Antichrist shows up and nobody else is getting saved. Man, everybody whose name who's written in that book of life is getting saved. Some of them during this time of deception, I believe, because the two witnesses are still very active during that time. Revelation chapter 12, verse six. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days, 42 months, right? So, so the Antichrist comes to power. The Antichrist is allowed to make war against the saints. He's allowed to conquer. We're being nourished during that whole time in the wilderness. Remember, we say that's God's territory, right? So, so while the Antichrist has been given authority, it's really, uh, it's really not the type of authority that, that, that you think of, because God remains completely in control during that time, and he takes care of us God limits Satan's influence, number two. He's only effective with those who do not belong to God. You say, but, but Adam, like he's killing Christians during this time. And I read that and I'm reminded, man, that's good news, right? Because we're waiting for the martyrs to get filled up, right? How long, oh Lord, until you step in and take things back over? How long until we see you visibly come and seize all this, give it to the Ancient of Days? How long until that happens? Man, until that last martyr is killed. Man, like Satan doesn't even pick up on the fact that he's killing Christians and speeding up his demise. Right? Like if Satan just called off all the dogs and said, whoa, quit killing Christians. Right? Like nobody's allowed to kill Christians because when we kill the last one, man, then Jesus comes back and we're done. Like we're going to the bottomless pit, like we're going to the lake of fire, like we are out. Man, even in what looks like our defeat, man, we're closer and closer to victory. We're closer and closer to victory. Influence of Satan is completely limited here. Our safety is tied to our names being written in the book of life, the Lamb's book. There's debate as to what is actually the descriptive word for being before the foundation of the world. It says, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Some people say, before the foundation of the world is tied to the Lamb being slain, that the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Others want to say, no, this is saying that before the foundation of the world, people's names were written in the book of life. Um, it really doesn't matter because both are true. First um, Peter 1, 19-20 that Jesus, the plan to have Jesus die on the cross, I mean, that was in place long before time. That's, that's always been part of God's plan, not plan B, not his reactiveness towards sin. 1 Peter 1, 19 through 20. Uh, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God right? Like he was slain before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 talks about us being uh, chosen and us being secured before the foundation of the world as well. So, so both are true here. Our security is tied to a lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, who wrote our names in a book before the foundation of the world. And because our names are secure there, we will never worship this beast if we're alive when he shows up, all right? Let's close out with a couple points of application. Be willing to listen, number one. John says in verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Man, John wants us to take this seriously, that there is great deception, and if we don't take great steps to combat that, then our names probably aren't written in the book of life. It's not that we're going to lose our salvation and give in to the deception. It's, man, if we don't listen to this, if this if this doesn't ignite us and inspire us and alarm us, we're probably not really Christians if you have an ear, let him hear. Number two, be willing to suffer. He says, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. 1 Peter 4.19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter says, don't stop doing good when suffering comes. Don't let that cause you to relinquish your faith in Jesus. Don't cause that to make you give up because suffering is set in. Keep doing good, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. And even if that suffering leads to your death, be faithful, don't lose heart. One commentator said, endurance is not uh, resignation, but is a courageously acceptance that the worst life can do can be turned into his glory. Endurance is not resignation, but it's courageously accepting the worst that life can do and turning it into God's glory. To kind of summarize that statement, the worst case scenarios should not cause us to turn from Christ. Think about that for a second. The worst case scenarios should not cause us to turn from Christ. We talked in chapel this week. um, I was teaching the kids from Philippians uh, where we're told to not be anxious about anything but be prayerful about everything, right? And when we do that, it says that God will guard our hearts and minds with peace. So I told the kids, I said, man, when we worry, when we allow worry and anxiousness to set in, it's typically because we are imagining the worst case scenarios, right? Like we, 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 start, to, we start to speculate and we start to imagine, man, this is going to go south and it's going to go way south, right? And rarely does it ever get near there in our lives, right? But we start to, man, really just start to speculate, and this is is where this is going. Man, the worst case scenarios are about to happen. We get worried, and we we start to get anxious, right? And and, and, And Paul says, man, pray about those situations. Pray about those situations. But here, we're reminded, man, if the worst case scenarios do happen, it can't cause us to wander from Jesus, even if the worst things that we can imagine happen to us, I don't know that it could get any worse than some of the things that Christians have already endured that, that caused them to lose their lives, right? Like it's one thing to die in your sleep. It's another to die burning at a stake, right? Nero took Christians and made them into human torches because they would not worship him, right? Like, that, like that's worst case scenario to me. And these are people that did not relinquish their faith in Jesus, be willing to suffer, John tells us here. And number three, be willing to trust. Be willing to trust. Second Timothy chapter three, verse twelve. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Like Timothy says. This isn't going away. This is going to get worse, bad to worse. But as for you, as it gets worse around you, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. And Timothy says, it's going to get worse. And don't let that stop you. Allow the things that you have learned, the things that you know about Jesus to hold you during those times. Verse 10, here is a call for the endurance, right? Listen, suffer. Here's a call for the faith, the trust of the saints. Last statement I want to leave you with. Our endurance is tied to us trusting God to keep this plan that we're describing here. Like, like what I want you to do today is I want you to pause and step back and say, okay, this is God's plan for the world. He is going to allow things to get worse He is going to allow governments and leaders to come to power because he's the one that's over it, Romans 13. He's going to allow governments and leaders to come to power who hate Jesus, who hate the church, who hate Christians, who are going to blaspheme his name, who are going to attack and conquer believers, who are going to kill them. And we've got to be okay with that plan. We've got to be okay with worst case scenarios happening. As we pray, Lord Jesus, come, we are praying for this plan to happen. And while it's happening in other places in the world, we've got to be okay if it starts happening here. We got to be okay if worst case scenarios start happening to us here and we endure through it and we trust him through it. That's that's what we're called to do here, to trust him in worst case scenarios, to keep this plan, to not relinquish our trust, but to be willing to relinquish our life. Like this is the plan. This isn't, this might be how God does it. This is how God's going to do it. I really believe that he is going to allow an individual to come into power that will draw so many people's attention away from Jesus towards him. And he's going to deceive people from every tribe, nation, and tongue he's going to kill a lot of christians and i got to be okay with believing that that's the god that's the god who has good things in store for his people long term and that for a time it's going to look like man we're being defeated but we're getting closer and closer to victory every time a martyr dies we're getting closer to that number being filled up where jesus comes back the ancient of days kills the sea beast takes back everything for eternity gotta be okay with it Family worship questions. What are some key beliefs that we have about Jesus based on scripture, right? First John says, man, antichrist people are people that don't believe right things about Jesus. What are the key beliefs that we have about Jesus based on scripture? Use this as a week to teach your kids. What do we believe about Jesus? Who is he? Why do we follow him? Why do we worship him? What do we believe about him? Number two, based on those beliefs about Jesus, how should that affect the way that we live? Because that's ultimately why people want to explain away Jesus. Because if you believe Jesus is the Messiah, you believe he's the son of God, you believe that he has authority to say the things that he says, and it puts demands upon your life. And I don't want to do those things. All right, I don't want to do those things. Man, what's attractive about the Antichrist? He brings good things to the people, right? He brings good things to the people. The contrast here is that the world is gonna be filled with people who are worshiping Jesus when bad things are happening, and we're not letting go of the fact that we believe he has good in store for us long-term. Based on our beliefs about Jesus, how should they affect the way that we live? Now, I'm excited to continue this discussion. I know we threw a lot at you today. Um... Some of it more introductory than anything, but man, I hope you can cling to those things that come straight from that passage, the clear things. Deception is coming. It's already here. It's coming in a greater form down the road. We can be encouraged that, man, it's limited. God limits that power of Satan. He limits the influence of Satan. We need to be willing to listen, to suffer, and to trust him when these worst-case scenarios start to happen. We keep trusting him that this is his plan, and this is how it turns out. It turns out for our good. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this chapter. Um, God, I thank you that um, it's not easy to figure out because that drives us to be in your word more, drives us to really strive to understand you, strives to understand your plan. And God, I'm thankful that you've given us enough of it so that we can prepare ourselves for what's to come. God, we may never know who the Antichrist is, but God, I'm thankful that we're made aware enough of what he's about that we're made aware of what he wants to do, we're made aware of his message, that we can be on the lookout for it so that even as little antichrists come before him, we can guard and protect ourselves from that deception. God, I'm thankful that despite all these worst case scenarios, they all fall into your plan and they are all limited according to your authority. God, I'm thankful that Satan's only permitted to do this for 42 months. Lord, I'm thankful that he can only do it to those that are already perishing. God, I'm thankful that you protect us, that you have sealed us, that we're part of that 144,000 that are protected from these things. God, I'm thankful that when you come back, our awe, our worship, our amazement is going to be directed to you, that we're going to be at that point saying, who is like our God? Who can compete against him? God, protect us from becoming Enamored with anything this world offers. God, I pray that you would protect our marriages in this church, that you would protect our spouses. God, that you would protect them from believing any lie from Satan that would tell them that something is better than obedience to Jesus in that relationship. God, protect our kids. Lord, as they are growing up and understanding our faith as we're teaching it here, teaching it at home, God, there's coming a day where they're going to leave our houses. And they're going to have to start making decisions of faith on their own. God, I pray that you'd prepare them now and protect them from the things that are to come. God, I pray that as Timothy says, or as Paul tells to Timothy, God, I pray that our kids would be able to rely upon the things that they've learned since childhood. That when, when deception and, and imposters and, and bad moves to worse sets in, they can rely upon the things that they've learned, things they've heard about you. <laughs> that would carry them through those seasons of life. God, I pray that we would have ears that hear this message, that would, would be inspired and, and, and awakened to things around us so that we can be willing to suffer, we'd be willing to trust you, that this world would stand in amazement at us as to why we would continue to worship a God who allows these type of things to happen to us to trust you in the midst of suffering knowing that the ancient of days is coming we look forward to that day in Jesus' name thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast we trust that you've been encouraged by the word for more information about our church please visit our website at www.sovhope.org again that's www.sovhope.org